Jeb, picture of the week. Picture of the week. Picture of the week. So we've got pictures here of a, uh, this might can be considered an off-field landing of the week. We don't really know exactly what happened, but but the airplane, well, no, it's not an off-field because you can't really, you're not really probably going to reuse this airplane, I guess. I don't think that's going to be. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah the airplane got pretty mangled up. It appears to be, I don't know, what, what can you recognize the airplane? No, it's it's some home built, or maybe, I'm sorry, LSA, it might be, I thought, I, it, no, I'd, I'd hesitate to even say. I, yeah, it's like a sport cruiser or a, yeah, a yeah. gobosh or, or something like uh-huh. that, but it's it's a little bit bent up, so it's kind of hard to identify. Yeah. Uh, what's the punchline of this picture, though, Jim? Well, the punchline is um, the airplane is... Um, just behind a stop sign on a residential street facing the camera. Okay. The, the even better part of the punchline, of course, stop sign, and, and okay, fine. Uh, the airplane is, is in, a, I see, you know, two, I see one big piece and I see a canopy and, and the big piece is kind of mangled and all this, but the cowling is not, which is just, I don't Hang know, on, Jeb, you broke up there. You said the cowling is something. The cowling is nestled right up against the back okay. of the um, uh, piece of metal holding up the stop sign. Uh, on top of the stop sign is a street or street signs, and the aircraft crashed at the corner of Cessna Drive and something. Yes, it's right there on Cessna Drive. It's right there on Cessna Drive. Um, but apparently, this is near. This is a uh, residential area, in, and this was in Erie, Colorado. Oh really? So it's not yeah. now. We don't. We don't know for that. Maybe this isn't like a, a an air park, do we? Is this like a residential air park? I don't get. I don't get that. Um, uh, that impression. You'd think they'd make a deal out of it in the article if it were. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, Cessna maybe Drive. Maybe they were taxiing. Maybe it wasn't a crash. If it was a air park. <laughs> if it was well, taxiing. There's, there's, was touchdown very... marks. there's touchdown marks in the driveway, guys. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the article says crash shortly after takeoff. So. Yeah. If uh, yeah. If it, if it was a taxiing accident, it was one of the more violent ones. That's and what I you call a ground loop, at, man. That's I what think you... they were looking at tread marks on the roof of the yeah, house. Yeah. And they were speculating this yeah. thing clipped the corner of a roof as it was coming down so uh, uh-huh. i don't know but uh anyways well he avoided he avoided what is inevitably the biggest killer in in aviation and that is the absolute sudden stop true <laughs> well no i mean yeah that's you, you characterize no, that I'm as serious. a joke I'm no serious. i i agree that's what I, i've always felt that that's one of the key things i mean it sounds like a joke but uh you know on my checklist as i uh, as i if i were ever to have a forced landing is uh, you know f- f- fly the airplane Fly the airplane all the way to a stop and don't hit anything. And no right. joke, don't hit anything. Right, and if you have to steer it between two trees, the yeah. wings will stay behind. Uh, but you'll go on without that uh, absolute sudden stop. Right. The, tri- the trick would trust be. Me. The trick would be to make hand experiences. We humans don't bounce well. Yes, I know. Uh, Yeah, the the trick is to get both wings to clip at the same time. The the the, it's kind of problematic when you when you lose one and not the other. Things go a little nutty. But uh, anyways, looking at this, it's it's not hard to see how he might have clipped the high part of that roof on the way down, um, bounced off the driveway and gone careening over toward the stop sign. Uh Uh-huh. Where he obviously can't get a ticket for rolling on it, so right, uh, right. and he's losing energy all the way through that process. Yeah, yeah. the article says the pilot walked away with minor injuries. However, the passenger was transported to a nearby hospital to be checked for minor injuries. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one where 
even with a shoulder harness, uh, the, 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 the body doesn't take to the, to the shoulder harness all that well. Yeah. It, it can break your ribs and still let you walk away. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, odd one, but particularly odd because of the Cessna drive thing. I don't know. Maybe we'll discover that it was intentional and there was some reason. Well, I think they'll be able to salvage the canopy for the, uh, the next version of the aircraft. Yeah, the canopy and the altimeter. I don't know. It's not much. Yeah, it pretty got pretty bent up there. But uh, well, uh, it's, it, it, it's obvious that there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of places for that airplane to give as it's being as, as it's decelerating in the face of an immovable object. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another story. This is kind of weird. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and first I'm going to tell you something. This is one of my legendary segues, all right? So just kind of work with me here, all right? Uh, it was the internet was all abuzz this morning. At least the aviation internet was all abuzz this morning because the beer people, Anheuser-Busch, uh, apparently sometime in the last couple of days filed something on the order of 40 different trademark applications for various three-letter three-letter you know combinations that coincidentally were the airport codes for a whole bunch of the biggest airports in america they filed trademarks for ord and bos and lax and and all these kinds of things all right and everybody's all first of all nobody knows why you can't quite figure out why anheuser-busch would do this although a while back, Anheuser-Busch uh, apparently filed trademarks for a whole bunch of numbers. I, I forget what the reasoning behind that was, 271 and, and whatever. Um, so, uh, so everyone's worried that Anheuser-Busch... How can you trademark a number? I don't know. <laughs> and you can trademark it if it's a mark. You know, it's, you know, like, uh, well, what, is, I'm, I'm what are the genes? There's a genes that have a number, right? Uh, uh, 401s or something like that, all right? I'm sure there's a trademark on 401 or whatever the number well, is. I, looking at a 2011 story where they wanted to trademark area codes area codes that's what it was area codes okay well this, this morning from a year, over a year ago well this morning they they trademarked a whole bunch of airport codes uh, airport ids but minus the k they're just the three letter portion of it all right and then the, and the, the twitter verse was all all a buzz because the all the pilots were concerned that they were trying to steal the airport names and i don't know if that's the case or not we'll call it the uh the uh, Budweiser Boston Logan International. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. It's it's <laughs> maybe naming... they're just planning to set up microbreweries within these airports, yeah, something like that. But uh, anyways, uh, what made me think of this story is that I think it's Jeb. You called our attention to you put an item on the list here that says, "Ever wonder how air, an airport got its identifier?" And is there really right. a story behind that? I mean, is it, are you talking about one particular airport or airports in general? This story dates a couple of years, and it's not, uh, I think it's like L.A. Times or something like that. But let me load the link here if I can. Come on. Come on. For listeners who are currently tapping their iPods because the sound quality has just degraded, all right, I should explain that uh, yeah. a couple moments ago, Jeb experienced some sort of strange power outage, and the power is coming and going. So we've transferred him over to his landline temporarily. And let me Let me put some meat on that bone. There's nothing strange about it. Yeah. <laughs> Happens all the time. I can yeah. see right on my iPad some uh, major storms right over the Sarasota area. Yeah, that's that's the problem is there's no there's no mystery or anything about this. It's it's yellow, red and purple 
and it's pretty much has my my house foresighted. So. Okay. Well, if you need to head to the basement, <laughs> yeah, let us know. Anyways, tell us about this. How do they name airport? How do they come up with airport IDs? Well, I love that story. I'm looking at this list. Yeah. They are out of their freaking minds. LaGuardia, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh-huh. JFK, Dulles, National, uh, San Antonio. Now, David, you're uh, talking Cincinnati. about David. You're talking about Anheuser Busch now, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. But Jeb is about to tell us separately. Oak City, Kansas City, Phoenix, LAX, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit. Uh, Wow, they got they got both Kansas City airports in this. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Anyways, so Jeb, how do they come up with these IDs? Well, a lot of it has to do with just the history of the area, or. the uh, geography around the airport itself as opposed to the major city it serves. Uh, the best example uh, is O'Hare. Uh, the identifier for which is ORD, or Oscar Romeo Delta. And the way that arose is the airport originally was sited uh, at, on an orchard or near an orchard. So somehow it got the identifier ORD, uh, early on, in, in honor of, of said orchard, or, I'm sorry, orchard, um, it got the name O'Hare um, um, as, a, as a commemoration to a, a man killed. He's from the Chicago area, killed in World War II, as I recall. Uh, yeah, I believe he was an ace, ace pilot. Wasn't he the one of the preeminent aces of World War II? O'Hare, I I'm not so, sure. Yeah. I'm yeah, not could sure. be. Let's, let's, let's go find out. Okay, because um, we have this new technology now that allows us to. Well, most of us, stuff. most of us do, Jeb. <laughs> well, most of us do. I, I have a, I have a green light here on this. So right. yeah, let's see. What do you find here? there? Wikipedia. Um, named after. Let's see. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Uh, oh, airport is named after Edward O'Hare, the U.S. Navy's first flying ace and Medal of Honor recipient in World War II. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, let's click the O'Hare link. And, and anyway, uh, he apparently was from um, dum, 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 Chicago. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just shocked. Uh, but it, nevertheless, it's little things like that that you wonder how O'Hare got ORD. Or another example is is Louisville. Um, there's two airports in Louisville, of course. There's the International, which is LOW, but that's a relatively new facility. And Dave, you can probably verify this better than I can. Uh, well, I was going to talk about these because well, go, uh, go 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 ahead because I might uh, I might go offline here any minute. Well, I grew up across the river from these places, and these were the airports where the family, you know, mom and dad took me when I really wanted to watch airplanes. The other was a little field called Haps, but you could go up the observation tower at Standiford Field was the name of the airport. And a Corps of Engineers bought it uh, and built it in 41, and part of the land that they took was donated by a local doctor named Standiford. And it was a plaque in the middle of the terminal. And the terminal was one of those old-fashioned kind of Y-shaped things with a big U where you pulled the cars in around. Uh-huh. And you got out and you went through this little radiating arm of uh, uh, gates and out to the airplanes, out, you know, on the tarmac. 
and it was an observation tower. Bowman Field was an Army training field just a few miles to the uh, east of, of Louisville, of Standard. But a few years ago, let's say, I'm going to say around 20, the uh, city of uh, Louisville decided that they'd get more attention because they had uh, United Parcel Services Air Region headquartered there, and all the international stuff goes in and out of Louisville. So they renamed it Louisville International. Well, Standiford, SDF, the designator made sense. LOU, which is Bowman Field, <laughs> that's the original airport in town. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. It, it, LOU is, is the old Army training base, General Aviation Field, still very, very busy, all GA. Uh, it had LOU before there was a Standiford. They named Standiford. After the doctor that donated the land, SDF became the designator, and it made sense until Louisville decided to change the name of the airport to Louisville International. Oh, okay. Now, LOU is kind of confusing to people because, oh, that's Louisville International. No, that's SDF. What? Yeah. How did that happen? Hmm. Now, what about, what about these airport IDs that aren't? Purely letters, all right. There's the ones that you know, like uh, you know, th- numerals, three, th- three os. But but it's not just numerals. Sometimes it's a usually it's a mixture of numerals and and num and uh, and letters. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Twenty-eight X in Florida. A right. lot of them. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the the I don't know how they get their um, their designations at that level. A lot of it has to do with the. Uh, State uh, Aviation Authority, and uh, if you notice, um, um, private fields or, or smaller fields uh, in different states, they're all going to have a series of identifiers that are similar. Um, I can't really give you examples uh, off the top of my head, but uh, if you look at all of these these airports whose identifiers are not fully composed of letters, you'll start to see patterns based on the state. So I kind of wonder if it has something to do with either uh, the state uh, agencies that regulate uh, airports or perhaps the FAA regions themselves when you go to designate the the landing area as an airport. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly how all that works, but I can tell you this, that... Generally speaking, there are there are some exceptions that I'll get to in a second. Generally speaking, if the airport has a three-letter, and, I'm, and when I say three-letter, I mean three-letter identifier, it typically will have weather reporting service. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, of some kind. It may or may not um, be um, reported over the uh, flight service network, for example. But, well, it, uh, it, I remember they're generally, they're generally not a part of the NIPIUS if they don't right. have three letters. Right. The what? Excuse me. The what? National Plan for Integrated Airport System. Thank you. NIPIUS. Thank you. Um, my my thing about these these three letter codes that have numbers in them, or three three character codes that have numbers in them. They're, actually, they're not all three characters. Some of them are actually four characters. Right. That's right. Is that they're mixing in? Um, um, sometimes they have zeros or, or 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 O's in them, and it's hard at a glance to know what you're looking at. Are they, you know, I, I always find that to be a problem. If it says three three o seven, is that a three zero seven or a three Oscar seven? Here's here's the rule. 
rule of thumb that I'm aware of yeah. is any any identifier that starts with a letter and ends with a number always has the last two positions in the identifier as numbers. Okay, so if you see whiskey ten, which used to be Manassas, you'll know that it's uh, whiskey one zero. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, or if you saw whiskey zero niner, which also existed, may still exist for all I know, uh, or whiskey o nine, you know that's a zero and not an o. I see. Is it my imagination, or are some states starting to change over to a system where they have the the, the state code like like NH and then a number or FL or something like that? Yes, they are. Um, again, I don't know if that comes from the state level or from the federal level. I think I think it comes from the federal level, and, I and think so here's why. And this was explained. Some of this was explained to me once long ago by a friendly FAA guy. Uh, he said, put it this way, why do you need a designator? Well, you, you need a designator if you want to be a, people to be able to identify the airport, as opposed right. to you're flying out of 3,000 feet behind your house, and you don't care if the world knows. Right. You can file that paperwork, and it won't show up anywhere except as a circle and a P on a chart with nothing more in it. Mm-hmm. But if you want people to know it's there, you apply for a designator. Well, the chart system is national. States can use it, but the feds who controls it, uh, that's the FAA, right? Uh, so you want to have your airport charted. Uh, they will work with you to give it a designator, and some of the numbering lettering system is state-based, but they assign it. For example, you guys are familiar with Dead Cow International, right? Mm, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's Westport here in Wichita. Its designator is 71 kilo. Uh, that came from the Fed, I was told once, and the K is a Kansas designator. But you can also get Kansas designators in other ways, like a few miles away, Lloyd Stearman Field in Benton, Kansas. Its designator for decades has been one kilo one. It's another Kansas airport. And you can find Kansas designations at the end and at the beginning of these three-letter designators, but they are always two numbers yeah. and only one letter. I see. Well, but the one, the one kilo one, though, gives, uh, uh, breaks that mold. No, it's still two numbers so and it's one n- letter. So it's number, letter, number is what you're saying. I'm, huh. I'm saying any three combinations. Yeah. Okay. okay, and I'll give you an example. Uh, 51 kilo is Cedar Air Park which is in uh, Olathe, Kansas. All right. Kilo 51 is also in Kansas. That's Medicine Lodge. Uh 51 kilo, kilo 51. uh, Westport is 71 kilo. Lloyd Stearman Field is one kilo one. Uh, I'm not sure what Kentucky gets to do about that. You see some interesting nomenclature in intersections and approach fixes as well, where they're a little more playful with things. Yeah, oh, they are. Yeah, those, yeah. those intersection that that intersection naming protocol is full of all sorts of whimsy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they sneak that in. The whimsy weird, in aviation. The weird case we've got up here in New England. I'm sure there's more than one, but. Uh, 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 coincidentally or not, um, there's a Northampton, New Hampshire, and there's also a Northampton, Massachusetts. Both of these Northamptons have small airports. The 
ID for Northampton, uh, New Hampshire is 7 Bravo 3. The identifier for Northampton, Massachusetts is 7 Bravo 2. Oh, wow. Yeah, huh? Isn't that great? Well, well beyond the, the numbers, sometimes uh, the names themselves can be confusing. I remember when AOPA used to put out their printed version of their directory and trying to find airports sometimes that I would think of them as being named one thing and they would be listed in an, another format with another name and it would be completely impossible to find them, at least for me. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, they, they ought to at least have the more common term, the common name listed and, and say, see whatever the other name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Years so. ago, um, there was legislation that went through Congress that, um, well, let me let's back up. Um, airport, na- airport names are airport names, okay? And the cities in which they are located or the cities with, uh, with which they're associated um, not, is not necessarily the name of the airport, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a big to-do at one point uh, with respect to how uh, chart books and maybe the AFD and, and other uh, uh, references should be organized. Should approach books, for example, be organized by name of the, the city or name of the airport? Okay. And that actually made it to Congress. There was legislation uh, addressing that. Uh, and you can you know look at your approach books and, and figure out how it all came out. Um but you know, my my favorite airport name of all time is something like um, the Eastern Maryland Regional Jet Port at Stallings, which is nowhere. It's in you know uh, Saint something or other Maryland. Yeah, yeah. It's got this huge multisyllabic uh, uh, name. Uh, you couldn't even begin to fit onto a knee pad. Um, but that's that's the airport's name. Yeah, that's the airport's name. Well, I right. think we'll be seeing more of that as. Uh, Airports kind of follow the trend in society at large and sort of obfuscating and trying to put the emphasis on marketing rather than reality. Up uh, in St. Augustine, where I spent some months, they just renamed the airport from what I thought was a perfectly good name, St. Augustine Airport. Now it's uh, Northeast Florida Regional, which they have determined somehow is going to sucker more people to coming there thinking it's something else. Right. Yeah, well, I don't think they, they, they want them to think it's something else necessarily. They just want them. To, they want the name to connote w- where it is. Uh, mm-hmm. up, up here in New England, um, we have perfectly good uh, sort of what I call a second level or, or a class Charlie Airport uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire, and uh, but they've recently renamed themselves from Manchester Airport to the Boston Manchester Regional Airport or the Manchester Boston Regional Airport. The reason is they wanted to get the name Boston in there so people who sure. are people who are making travel. Travel plans, you know, in Iowa, knew that this airport was near Boston and might be a better choice for for flying into New England. You know, so uh, yeah, naming, naming. Anyways, that'll be that. We'll call that lesson one in the UCAP, uh, you know, series on uh, airport identifiers. You know, U- useless trivia that you only encounter in a hangar flying session. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, there, there's interesting ways that communities game these names. And the net designators, and I got an example. Okay, quickly though, real quick. Okay, Colonel James Chabara Airport, which is the big 
6,000 foot, got its own ILS, General Aviation Airport on the far northeast side of Wichita, opposite of Mid-Continent. has been known for Jab- as Jabara for most of it, not all, but most of its life. But it used to have a different designator, and I can't find what the old designator was. But when they lengthened the runway to 6,000 feet and got the ILS, the city fathers decided that they would help their comp- competitiveness in cross-country travel if they were able to get a designator that would move them up in the list of GPS databases and search engines. Yeah, okay, yep. They applied for and received the new designator, Alpha Alpha Oscar. Yeah, right. Which yeah. is already taking, taken by ICAO uh, for Anaco, Venezuela. But since this is a U.S. airport and in the Nippius, ICAO, uh, or IATA, I should say, calls it Kilo Alpha Alpha Oscar. Right. right. And only here in the States is it purely Alpha Alpha Oscar. But all of that just to move it up on search engines and on the GPS navigation databases when people are looking for places to fuel up on cross-country stops. It's over the 6,000-foot runway bar that a lot of turbine flight plan search engines use, uh, and it's got that early designator. I mean, you'd have to come up with alpha, alpha, alpha to do better than that. Yeah. My my question is is the guy they named that airport after the same guy that he's the guy who invented the uh, the the new air, airplane engine and the LSA right? Jabaru. That's Jabaru. No, Colonel James Jabara was uh, he he was our first jet ace in Korea. Okay, I'm, my apologies to the gentleman. I was just goofing around. Welcome, folks, to episode two hundred all of that two hundred ninety-one of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. That, that's got to be a new record for a late intro. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise that's yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're on site clear around turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta we're recording this episode on uh, Friday, June 15, 2012, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, three of my very good friends. Uh, first of all, Dave Higgins out there talking to us from somewhere near Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Oh, just doing lovely. It's been a wonderful week. Uh, got a lot of work done. Uh, seen some airport friends a couple of times out and about. Uh, yeah, good stuff all and i'm hanging out with my friends here on ucap again cool and also out there this evening is uh, jeb burnside talking to us from somewhere near storm-ridden sarasota florida uh, storm-ridden sarasota florida it was getting with the program here a minute ago yeah How, so have the lights flickered again recently they flickered a little recently and and um you know a lot of water uh, has fallen here recently let's put it that way yeah should but, we try and go uh, back onto uh the other thing or should we stay we're, we're, we're in a real little now, but there's more coming. So. There's more coming. All right, we'll stay yeah, with it's, it. It's starting to pick up now. Thirty minutes or so from now, we should be finished with this. All right. You know. Well, we'll 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 stick with what we've got. Don't. Yeah. It's not broke, so we won't fix it. Right. 
And also here after a long absence, sadly, is uh, our good pal uh, James Winbrandt is talking to us from, uh, you're back in the Big Apple, New York City, your, your summer yes. quarters. How are you doing, James? Great, great. It's great to be home. I had a, a great time uh, in Florida the last few months, but it's great to be home. Yeah. So, James, we missed you at, uh, at Sun and Fun this year. What, what, you, were, you were doing something else more fun. Uh, I don't know if it was more fun. I, I, this was the first Sun and Fun I've missed for, I'm not sure when, day when was it that uh, GAN first did uh, the Sun and Fun Daily, because that's the first time I went there, and this was the first year I missed it. Uh, and that's because I was over at uh, the A-Base Asian Business Aviation uh, Convention Exposition in Shanghai, uh, working with AIN on uh, the the daily uh, show magazine they put out there, so that was very exciting, uh, really thrilling to be there and to see all the enthusiasm and all the energy uh, committed to general aviation and business aviation in that part of the world right now. Fascinating. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was looking at India as that was going to be the breakout uh, area in that in the. Hey, hi. Sorry, that was me. What did uh, you do? I'll, I'll let me get everybody back, and then I'll throw myself on the mercy of the court here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Hello. Hi, David. I'm sorry. I'll sp- let me get James back here, and then I'll explain what happened. <laughs> All right. Not to put money in the account again. No, no, that wasn't it. it, it was it something I said? No, 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 no. Okay, I got everybody back now. All right. Okay. So listen, when you're when you're working with Skype on the Macintosh, and you got the little little uh, little panel here, and you want to mute your microphone, you want. <laughs> Don't click on the red hand. You click the mute button. You don't click on the red hang up button. Okay. Good idea. Depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, so. Anyways, I, I I don't know how to this, put this. This on. will come up at the next. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. All right. So, anyways, I'm sorry. Before we were so rudely interrupted, uh, James, we cut you off. I'm sorry. You were telling us about uh, the the show down there at uh, out in the uh, far east, the exotic in Shanghai. Yes, yeah. it was very exciting. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, well, orders for that part of the region. I mean, it's growing phenomenally. Obviously, it's not a mature market, and it doesn't take as much to kind of move the needle over there. But, uh, you know, China has been doing quite a bit. Obviously, it is still a totalitarian society there and government, but they have made uh, great strides relatively in deregulating the airspace and allowing it uh, more general aviation activity there, whereas India, that a couple of years ago, people were projecting that that would be the the big aviation, private aviation spot of the uh, the Asian region, has been much slower. So it's it's kind of interesting to see that, mm-hmm. and uh, they've sort of signed up for the next five years to have the A base show there at the same place in Shanghai, and so I'm looking forward to seeing how the region shapes up. Uh, Jackie Chan was there showing off his new legacy, a lot of aircraft on display. And uh, a lot of very uh, interested people, a lot of charter activity, a lot of charter companies there ordering aircraft. So, again, just uh, very fascinating to see them uh, kind of at the birth of their aviation culture. Yeah. How how does this... 
go ahead. I'm sorry, David. Was that no, you? Go ahead. Go ahead, James. I was just curious. How does a show? So we're many of us, certainly the four of us, are very familiar with air shows here in the states. How does an air show over there compare to to uh, the ones what, that we're familiar with? Air show. It wasn't an air well, show. now I well, should say this is not an air show in terms of watching aircraft fly. Okay, but okay, it's, it's a trade show, so a lot of static displays, mm-hmm. and uh, similar to what you might find. At an NBAA here, the National Business Aviation Association trade show, which is sort of the, you know, the preeminent show of the world of business aviation aircraft. So what you'll have is is halls full of exhibitors, and in fact, they saw this was in the large hangar of uh, Hawker Pacific. It was cleared out of aircraft, and they set up booths. That sold out. They set up an outdoor pavilion. That sold out. So they're going to have to get some extra space for next year. And then they had about, I think, 30 aircraft on display. And in that part of the world, they seem to favor the large cabin long range because typically, well, they are some flying within Asia, but there's a lot of uh, flying going on over the ocean. So there was a lot of business aviation heavy metal there, a lot of Gulf Streams, Global Express, uh, ACJs, BBJs were there. So, uh, so again, it is not the kind of thing where you're going to see aircraft flying, but you have access to going out and, and getting on board all the aircraft and seeing how they're decked out and uh, seeing all the booth activity. An interesting difference there, everybody had the same size booth. So it wasn't oh, really? like uh-huh. the grand displays. So I guess it may be hearkening back to the the communist roots of China, that sort of more, well, we're all equal in this, uh, that they kept all the the display booths the same size. Actually, a lot of that was to maximize how many different vendors that they could get in the door. Uh, Yes, good point. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, One one of the projects uh, on my desk earlier this year was doing work for a couple of outfits that exhibited there and doing research and, and writing work for a client to talk, to talk about the market in China. And there's really two different things going on there. Uh, and you're 100% right. The dominant interest right now is in uh, uh, large business jets with long and ultra-long range because they're being primarily bought by Chinese business people that are doing a lot of business internationally. They don't have a whole lot of airports internally to handle smaller airplanes, and that's a whole different world of development. They don't have airports. They don't have FBOs at the airports. They do have. They have no support infrastructure for the domestic market, nothing remotely comparable to what we're used to here and see in Europe. And so you got these two different market revolutions going along in parallel, that are going to really complement one another. Uh, and there's an even larger market for what's going to start developing internally. That's work for pilots. It's work for flight instructors. It's work for companies who want to sell the smaller airplanes. It'll be more suitable to go into the point-to-point. And China's on a airport building binge right now. Uh, mm-hmm. If I remember right, they're talk- talking about trying to build uh, 500 different size airports and 500 different locations in five years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a huge public works program on one hand, uh, but it is going to expand access by air. And that airspace opening up is, is, 
has been the signal everybody's been waiting on to gauge how serious China is about the rest of it. Because you could do all that other stuff, but without the airspace open, it didn't mean anything. Yeah, that's right. So they've yeah. been opening the airspace first, even though there's not a lot of places to go in it. And now they're proceeding to put places to go in it, and that's going to sell a lot of airplanes and get a lot of pilots' work. Mm-hmm. We hope so. I don't know how unified the government is in its policy, because on the one hand, you see that activity, and on the other, you talk to people about what's going on in the regulatory environment, and there are large sections of the bureaucracy that just does not grok the idea of people getting in their own small airplane and being allowed to get up and fly somewhere. Right. So yeah, no, you're right. they're going to have to come to terms with that. Yeah, and, and probably won't in the near future. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, well, listen, uh, welcome, James, back to the uh, virtual hangar. It's been too long. Great and uh, to be here. We're, we're, fun, dude. we're glad to have I you know, back. I know. I miss you guys. Yeah. We're glad to have yeah. you back. Hey, listen, before I completely forget here, this episode is just going all the heck. Uh, uh, I, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you from high atop <laughs> Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. So, uh, anyways. Occasionally. Yeah. All right. Let's see if we can wade into this list here. Cause Keep we, your finger away from the red icon. Yeah, I know, really. We uh, <laughs> we trimmed this list down majorly to begin with, and now it's still way too long. All right. Let's see if we can uh, – I'm hoping we can we can dispense with this first one really quickly. Um, yeah, it, I think we can. I probably should even be on the list. I can't find anything about uh, – So this AD. is – yeah, this is from the forums. A uh, listener, Kelly R. W. in the forums, uh, posted a message asking about uh, a a major uh, AD for the Cessna 150s and 152s. Apparently, um, he referred to it. He or she referred to it as a 208-page AD. Um, wondered if this was some sort of conspiracy. You know, he kind of he or she kind of came up with this conspiracy theory idea that this was a way to get the 150-152 fleet to be retired, um, but. You're yeah, saying, that's, 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 Jeb, you're not finding any such uh, AD, right? I'm not finding any such AD. There may be a service bulletin yeah. out there from Cessna, but in looking at the emergency ADs over the last 30 days, the new ADs over the last 60 days, or all other current ADs on the FAA website, there is no such animal over the last couple of years that addresses... Um, um, what this gentleman seems or this person seems to be thinking about. The only, you know, 100, 200 series AD that I have seen here uh, is like the third or fourth iteration of the old uh, Cessna seat rail AD. Well, here's, I, I here's, can see the, you know, the legitimacy of the conspiracy theory to get the 150s, 152s out, which I think is why they, I kind of decided to do that side-by-side spin testing with the 152s. Yeah. Figured, ah, maybe knock a couple of them out of yeah. the sky while we're showcasing <laughs> our aircraft. That, that, that would only make sense if they were actually still liable for those airplanes. They're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That's true. So, all right. Well, now, look. here's what, here's what, here's what sparked this. Yeah. Cessna made a big deal in late May about announcing that it had created a special training program for mechanics uh, and owners of 100-series single-engine airplanes Oh, to inspect for corrosion and fatigue, uh, signs of fatigue, in the older airplanes. It's a 40-hour course for mechanics, uh, non-destructive testing, inspection techniques, ultrasound, eddy current, uh, how to look for and where in particular to look for some forms of corrosion or fatigue damage, uh, 
it's going to be a big deal for the maintenance community. Uh, and if you own one of these airplanes, like I've got a friend with a, a Cessna 140 who said he'd really be worried about this if the airplane had anywhere near the time that they're talking about on it. But it's a 60-odd-year-old airplane that's got less than 5,000 hours on it, so he's pretty sure the fatigue part's not an issue. Yeah. So are we talking then about like a game of telephone here where people have misconstrued that and it's yeah. morphed into this? I think yeah. that's what it sounds like, yeah. So, yeah. All right, well, let's leave that where it is and we'll move on here, but uh, um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. Be- there's no AD, there's no service bulletin. This is, a, uh, this is Cessna trying to help the maintenance community know what to look for and help them along in looking for new things. I see. Very good. Okay. This second item is uh, from, this is the result of a post in the forums that we actually received some time ago. Uh, we received it sort of just before Sun and Fun, and we were all kind of crazed with all the activities of Sun and Fun, and I made a note of this, and I intended to come back to it right after Sun and Fun, and it kind of got lost in all the craziness. Um, and the original poster kind of pinged me, and, uh, and, and I'm glad, because I did want to kind of quickly comment on this. We talked about the story some time ago about, uh, and we were kind of having fun with this, as a lot of people were, uh, because there was a story about a Russian airliner that had an engine fire on on the ramp or during taxi and kind of paused for a little while and then decided to proceed anyways to take off even after the fire. Um, and we and a lot of people had a lot of fun with this and uh, and kind of left it at that. Posting in the forums from listener Zarkov SE, uh, a person who signs his name Sergey Zarkov, uh, is kind of uh, set us straight here and taken us a little bit to task, not unfairly, uh, for uh, for blowing off Russian aviation here a little bit. He says, "I'd like to, uh, dear Dave, Jeb, and Jack, uh, and James, I'm sure. Uh, the I'd like to comment on the Russian passengers force pilot to abandon takeoff after engine fire story." He says, "The engine was not actually on fire. Here's what ha- actually happened." from the words of the airline technical director. Now, of course, this is Jack speaking. Um, this is this is Sergei Zarkov writing in the forums. We're going to take Sergei at his word and uh, and assume that this is more or less accurate. Um, but it makes some sense. Uh, this is the quote from the airline technical director. Uh, OAT, outside air temperature at the moment of engine start, was about plus 45C. That's pretty warm. Uh, what is almost critical temperature for that type of engine? One of three engines could not ignite due too high OAT. They tried to start it while taxiing, but that didn't help. More cooling was needed. So the fire engines were called to cool down the parking place and engines with cold water. After this, the engine successfully started. Such precedents are common, Sergi writes. The trick has been previously often used while operating in Iran due to very high OATs. Um, For what it's worth, 45 degrees Celsius uh, that's 113 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit, that's, so that's really that's like, hot. That's yeah. like smoking hot. Yeah, that's very, very warm. Well, that's Kansas part of the yeah. year. Sergi goes on to write, Unfortunately, as it often happens, there was no good speaker from the airline to tell the passengers the whole story in the right words without raising their susceptibility to... Uh, 
He said susceptibility, I think he meant suspicion or something like that, to the airplane airworthiness. And mass media, as always, is making hot and breaking news without getting into much detail behind the event. Uh, Sergi goes on to kind of take us a little bit to task for having so much funny, fun with the story and not really kind of digging into it. And perhaps he's right in any, in any event. I wanted to kind of set the record straight or at least tell Sergi's side of the story here, which makes a lot of sense to me. Any thoughts? One, Any one comments? Part of that, one part of that I think you left out, Jack, is one of the ways that the uh, uh, people on the ground uh, went to cool down the engine was basically with a fire hose. Yes. So the passengers are seeing a fire hose being used on the engine, and they're jumping to the conclusion the engine was on fire. Not a totally unreasonable conclusion, but yeah, you can you can understand what what how this all kind of went awry. Yeah. You would think the engine would be easier to start at that temperature that, you know, hey, just hold the match up to it, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. There we go. And light a match. James, you're just going to get us back in trouble again here. We're trying to... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's... Uh, so any other thoughts on that? Uh, uh, thanks to Sergi. Yeah, f- uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks to a listener, Sergi Zarkov, for uh, setting us straight uh, and for not letting us get away with uh, not setting it straight. That's a good deal. What's next here? We got a posting. Uh, this is actually not from our email or post forums. This is from Avweb's uh, letters on one of their uh, weekly uh, their one weekly uh, uh, newsletters. Um, the letter of the week had to do with emergency kits, aka survival kits, the survival kit that you might carry in your airplane, and it was asking people what they carry in their survival kit. And I'm curious for you guys, what what kinds of things do you carry in us in a quote unquote survival kit in your airplanes? Uh, who wants to go uh, first? You want it top to bottom? Well, let's not let's not belabor this too much. But you know, I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through just the everyday stuff that I carried flying domestically. Okay, go ahead. Uh, a pack of matches, a lighter, some kindling, a uh, signal mirror, uh, a little bit of water, uh, and a, a couple of uh, rain ponchos that could be used to keep me dry out of the rain or turned into a tent. Uh, minimal first aid kit. Uh, and an extra flashlight with extra batteries. Okay. That's just what was in the airplane normally. All right. James, do you carry some sort of extra survival kit when you fly? I do, uh, and I've carried different survival things uh, over the years, and I carry different things depending on where I'm going. If I'm going over water, I will have a life raft and uh, life jackets, inflatable life vests. Um, My primary kit right now is something that uh, a friend gave me up in Alaska, so it's pretty well suited. It's got some medical things in there. It's got uh, a space blanket, some other things like that, and then I always have things like flashlights, water, etc., that I don't necessarily consider part of the emergency gear, but it's always in the plane available. And also, I have uh, something that the same friend in Alaska gave me. It's a uh, little placard and it tells you about in an emergency all the things you can do with parts of your plane after it's crashed to help you survive and I've looked over that at time to time uh, it's not top of mind because I have it there to look at but that's also something to think about not just what's in your in your emergency kit, but what what do you got on the plane, and what can you do with all those materials to help you survive so that was authored by MacGyver, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay that's kind of interesting jeb what do you carry anything above and beyond what these guys have talked about no not really uh, i don't i don't have a specific uh uh you know kit 
uh, or anything like that. I have, you know, the, the, the flashlights, extra batteries. I always have a cell phone. Um, I have uh, water. Uh, I have some tools, uh, you know, light stuff like that. Um, but mainly, um, I, you know, most of the places, I, especially in the last several years, most of the places I go these days are not off the beaten path. Um, I can, if you know something quote happens unquote, um, generally I can probably make it to or close to an airport where I've got you know cell phone coverage or something like that. And if I don't have cell phone coverage, uh, then I've got a whole different set of problems. But uh, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not too stressed about it. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I would add to the lists that you guys make, uh, good lists that you guys made, um, is to think about not only what's in your survival kit, but what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, soon after coming back here to New England many years ago, uh, when I started flying here in New England, I was working with an instructor up at Sanford, Maine on a winter day. And uh, we had pre-flighted the airplane and kind of done all the things that you need to do. And we were getting ready to, to mount up. And, and I, I, I started to... I was wearing layers. I was wearing a heavy jacket and then like a sweater and things like that. And I thought, okay, I don't really need this heavy jacket. Once we're in the airplane, the sweater will keep me warm. And I started to take off the, the heavy jacket and leave it behind. And the instructor said, no, you really shouldn't do that. Um, because although it's a pain in the neck to have this heavy jacket on in this relatively small plane, in the event that you went down in the winter, you know, in the middle of nowhere, the heavy jacket could be the difference between living and dying. Definitely. Um, and to that point, and I, I was I was also wearing just sneakers on my feet, and you know, and he commented that in you know if you're really really going to be smart about it, you should you know wear more proper sh- shoes. Even though my shoes were totally fine for you know everyday living in in you know New England in the winter and even for operating the aircraft, they might have been problematic if I were you know out in the middle of nowhere in the snow. So think about what you're wearing as well as what you're carrying in your kits. Oh, there have been so many accidents where people survived but they were killed by hypothermia yeah. afterwards so yeah, exactly definitely right. if you're flying over some cold territory uh your survival kit is not complete if you don't have warm clothing to to keep you alive through a night yep actually a uh, space blanket it was it has been in my flight bag for years and it, 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 i hadn't thought of this until i was reading through some of the other answers here but all the way back in my hang gliding days, I paid some attention to this. Uh, like I carried a little cable saw. Uh, I carried a, a little container to catch water in. Uh, I carried uh, waxed matches to start a fire with. Uh, a little pin size uh, set of flares. Uh, and a, a space blanket. Didn't weigh much of anything. Uh, mylar really good at helping you preserve body heat. Uh, there were already Velcros on the hang glider, uh, in the hang glider inside the wing that I could use to do things like help hold uh, plastic sheeting up for a shelter or help me splint a broken bone or something like that, so I didn't worry about that too much. But uh, an extra knife, the cable saw, the space blanket, Something to hold water, not water per se, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, something to start a fire with. Uh, boy, going back to, I guess, uh, when I felt comfortable that I could soar more than a couple of miles from launch. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think we'll start a thread in the uh, forums, uh, inviting listeners to tell us uh, what's in their survival kits and uh, and and their thoughts on other items that should be. Well, of course, there are the, in most of Canada, uh, a firearm is uh, required if you're flying. Also, yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah. flying in remote areas, so yeah. that, that sort of also helps underscore the the seriousness of of what you need to have with you to survive. Right, right. There's well, some uh, wild critters up there. Yeah, really. Jeb, go ahead. Alaska state aviation regulations, I think, mandate specific equipment. Really? That's very interesting. I, it it certainly makes sense to me that a firearm could turn out to be useful, but, of course, oh. firearms laws in the United States are somewhat problematic as you wander right. around the country, and you've got to be careful. But uh, And you don't need them as much. You're not going to run into a polar bear, uh, you know, if you crash even in uh you know in, in the mountains uh in the united states and i no, yeah. that would be a, a a kodiak bear or a grizzly I, or, yeah and i wouldn't mm-hmm. imagine i wouldn't imagine that the firearm that you're going to carry in your car in your car in your uh, airplane is going to be effective against a polar bear but you never know you i know. think most people have rifles with them yeah although, unless you're talking about using you know if the polar bear comes you use the firearm on yourself i don't know or, <laughs> polar <laughs> expedition you, you, you blow the you kneecap the guy next to you and start running. <laughs> <laughs> well, some years ago, I was hired to be uh, the uh, uh, documenter of a, a ill-fated, never-got-anywhere polar expedition. And when we were training, we were going to fly ultralights from Warden Hunt Island to the North Pole. Cool, uh, yeah. Oh, it was a blast. Spent two and a half months with those guys doing the training up in Canada uh, here in the United States, building and flying the airplanes, learning to use survival gear, learning very, very distasteful survival techniques. Yeah. For example, yeah. if you got your skins tucked to some metal in Sub-Zero, the uh, hot setup for separating that was to have one of your colleagues come over and pee on it. Mm. Thank because you, David. that would thaw it out enough to get you loose without carrying skin. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much uh, for that, we, David. We appreciate that. We, the airplanes were equipped with uh, uh, a, a forty-one caliber Ruger revolver. Autoloader wasn't considered a good idea because in cold temperatures, uh, the, the, their mechanisms can get a little bit hanky if they're not lubricated properly. And a uh, 30-30, I, well, I think it was a thirty caliber survival rifle. It was one of these things you had to put together, right? But it was more than a twenty-two or a twenty-five, yeah. uh, and you know the, the instructor's only admonition was: this, pre- this, 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 this is assuming that you come out of whatever accident able to walk and not bleeding, because if you're bleeding, all bets are off. Yeah. Yep. So, survival kits. A uh, cool video that uh, a listener called our attention to. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we got to talking about hand-propping aircraft. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that. And we were wondering how big an airplane was it practical or how big an engine was it practical to hand-prop. Listener uh, Aviator1929 in the forums, uh, who is apparently a volunteer or perhaps even a staffer at uh, Rhinebeck Aerodrome in New York, writes, we regularly prop some fairly large engines engines at Rhinebeck, but have to go through some serious training before we were allowed to do so. Um, and he goes on to talk a little bit more about it. Uh, he includes a, a link to a YouTube video of them hand-propping this 
honking big 12-cylinder engine that's actually on a, on a stand, but, but it's a real working engine. And uh, it's interesting. It takes two people to hand prop it, to actually spin that's the prop. But the way. 400 horsepower engine. Yeah, and the oh, and the wow. way the way they do it is that they got one guy doing you know kind of standing at the prop the way you're familiar with. Only he he puts only one hand on the prop blade. Then he reaches out his other hand to his buddy, his assistant, right, <laughs> who grabs his arm. All right, I'm serious. Who takes his arm? All right, and then the two of them together pull. And and that gives them enough oomph to spin the prop so that it starts wow. the engine. And Have I not seen films for like World War II footage where there are a couple of people, maybe German stuff, where they're hand propping a, a, a I like can a imagine bladed? Yeah, no, I, I can. I've never seen such a thing, but I can imagine it. Sure, that's that's very consistent. I've, I've with, seen video where you've got you know a bunch of privates uh, walking in front of a, of a propeller and they grab a blade and pull it through, and the next one comes behind, grabs the next blade, and pulls it through like that. Um, I, that's probably not hand-propping. That's probably just limbering. Mm, just pulling it through. Yeah, get that's making oil. sure there's no oil in, the, in between exactly. the lower cylinder and mm-hmm. the top of it. Yeah. You, the wanna, you want to prevent hydraulic lock on the right. and that's one right. way to do right. it. Listener uh, Aviator1929 uh, finally says, uh, he, he says it makes a distinction between propping a tricycle gear plane and a tailwheel plane. Uh, because and that's a really good point. Of the yeah. angle of the blade and how you're kind of leaning towards the blade or the blade's leaning towards you and uh, mm. um, an interesting distinction. So... Uh, Thank you to Aviator1929 for uh, for uh, filling us in a little bit more about this story. Let's see here. Uh, as I pr- predicted, we're not going to make it through this list. Let's see if we can pick out some <laughs> pick out some good stuff here. Have uh, we ever made it through the list? Well, occasionally, but not very often. The problem is we're following further and falling further. Episode further and f- two. Yeah, I know exactly. That's when we were caught up. Uh, Jeb, what's this? The FAA is going to give you money for your ADSB equipment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? yeah? No, really. What's the story? Are, have they changed? Yeah, there's a meeting. There was a meeting. Um, let's see. It was held on May 30th uh, at FAA headquarters. Um, the uh, meeting uh, was to determine, to seek input. Excuse me. I'm just reading this from the FAA website. To seek input from interested stakeholders about program design and implementation of an equipage incentives program for commercial aircraft and general aviation to equip the aircraft for the next generation capabilities, basically talking about uh, ADS-B. Um, this wouldn't be any kind of a grant uh, or anything like that. The FAA is not going to give you, for example, a, a MODAS transponder or an ADS-B box or anything like that. It says, um, the FAA is working to understand what options exist for establishing the most effective program possible, uh, even if it receives no additional appropriations. The, um, uh, but what they're looking for here is some kind of a loan guarantee program um, to allow operators, commercial and non-commercial, to obtain guaranteed loans from the federal government to equip their aircraft with all this equipment. Um, don't hold your breath, I think, would be first reaction uh, on any of this. Second, second reaction, and I, I, it's kind of pithy here. I wrote this in our, our, our uh, 
um, on a list. I said, you know, let me see if I have this straight. Okay, the FAA now has mandated that operators must install ADSB to access certain airspace as of January 1, 2020. Um, obviously, the people who who are going to benefit one of the one, one of the groups that is going to benefit from this is the manufacturers of the avionics. Uh, fine, no problem. I understand that. So, but we have the FAA mandating that I buy all these avionics to to continue to operate in the airspace. Um, so I've, I've got to pay money for that. Now the FAA um, is is going to figure out a way to subsidize uh, uh, through loan guarantees those same manufacturers, but I get to pay for the you know, I get to pay the interest rates. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like I'm getting a kind of a double whammy here, and no one even bought me a couple of drinks. Before. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, what part of this don't you understand, Jeb? Come yeah, on. Which, yeah, I, I, I'm not I, clear no. where the where the second whammy comes from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first whammy is I got to buy this stuff in the first place. Oh, that's yeah, that's the whammy. The, the, sec- the second whammy is now I get to pay interest on this. You know. Well, that's only if you use their loan guarantee program. If, if, I, if I use their loan guarantee program. But not only is, is the, are the avionics manufacturers making money off of me, but so are the people making me the loan. Why, yeah. can't, why can't we just get the equipment? Okay? Don't worry about it, Jeff. By 2020, you'll be able to both fly, navigate, flight plan, and everything, all from your telephone. So it's, well, you know, I mean, that's one of the questions here. What form is this going to take? I just got a piece of ADSB equipment I haven't used it in the aircraft yet, but it's this uh, Stratus that's supposed to give me weather on my iPad. I haven't used it, but the fact that now there is a solution that costs a few hundred dollars, it's obviously not free, but it's not a $20,000 panel install, and I wonder as the year 2020 approaches, what's going to be available and if there might be some kind of uh, low-cost way of getting that in the aircraft, and if there may be waivers that, no, it doesn't have to be a permanent installation, as some of the ADSBs now are not, and that you're able to use, I don't know if they meet quite all the standards, but maybe this is evolving, and it just sort of reminiscent, I was just also over in Geneva for eBase, and of course they have that whole mess with the cap and trade that everybody is up in arms with, and an attorney from the U.S. at a forum they had said, hey, I tell my clients to call me. I say, don't bother with it because it's so impossible. It will never actually be put in place. And I wonder, again, if there is any sort of correlation to what's happening with ADSB that there may be amendments to the rules that everybody's got to have. It's got to be installed, et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't know well, if I'm I, I, on that part. Yeah, really that? I wonder about that too. I've heard I've heard some rumors. I, the source is kind of iffy. I don't know. You know, it, it was kind of mentioned in passing. Um, but the punchline and all that is, well, there's two punchlines. Uh, first one is um, the the rule is in place, and operators who want to access Class A airspace, airspace above ten thousand feet, and basically Class Bravo and Class Charlie airspace. Now, uh, we'll have to have ADSB out equipment installed, approved ADSB out equipment installed and, run, and operating uh, as of January 1, 2020. Um, 
I don't really look for that rule to change substantially, yeah. uh, at least not until we get closer to it. And the only reason it might change substantially would be, say, a, a glut of demand uh, for equipment and installation and a lack of resources, lack of infrastructure to co- to meet that demand. Okay, That's the only likely variation I, I, I really in this do. thing is... Yeah. They went. They went through this when they mandated the retirement of stage one mm-hmm. jet engines, mm-hmm. and w- as it got closer, stuff. They finally started granting waivers and pushing back some of the dates, but then they finally cut off that too and said, "Nope, we're done doing that." Yeah, it's uh, like the, it's like the heavy ultralights. Yeah, uh, you know, there, there was a grace period, and then they said no. Um, the, the other thing going on here. Um, and not, it's not the second punchline, but another thing going on here is I'm hearing some noise about the 1090ES standard and how it's perhaps not fully baked or, or not f- ready for prime time or something like that. Uh, all of that having been said, uh, the average personal aircraft operator doesn't have to worry about the 1090ES standard. Um, he's not going to be using that anyway. He's going to be using the 978 UAA, UAT standard. Um, because of, of uh, the 1090ES is only for um, Dave. Correct me. I think it's I think it's Class A airspace. Uh, Actually, 10, 1090 uh, extended squitter is usable through the whole spectrum. Right. It uh, is. Not the the uh, the UAT is supposed to be limited to eighteen thousand or below. Right. Right. Which is makes it in and the UAT universal access tra- transceiver. Uh, most of those so far have been out and in capable. Right. But most of the solutions that have been put to market so far have been based on a uh, 1090 extended squitter because it's easier to modify a regular transponder uh-huh. to do that and add the extended squitters code and not have to reinvent the wheel with the UAT, uh, which is really just another form of trans- transponder signal. But the, the thing to remember here is that this is not a $20,000 requirement. It's not going to be a $20,000 requirement. Well, There's nothing that says you have to have ADS-B in. That means you don't have to have a multifunction display. You don't have to have an in uh, receiver. Uh, all you have to do is have the out trans uh, transponder solution, whichever you choose, and an approved WAS reference, or an, I'm sorry, an approved navigation reference. It doesn't have to be WAS. There are other solutions. They they happen to be more expensive, but there are already on the market uh, little blind WAS boxes that you cannot use as a navigator but mm-hmm. fulfill the requirement for position reporting for ADS-B out. Yeah. Another thing you've got to have, though, is some sort of air data source. Okay. Well, um, that's part and parcel to these little units is okay. Uh, okay. the you connection between the uh, yeah. ADS, uh, the, the, the WAS receiver and the 1090ES or the UAT. The, they've got to have that connection. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Jeb, you want to wrap this up? Well, two two things, real quick. Um, the the taking an existing airplane like mine and and configuring it um, 
480SB will not be uh, in substantial expense. Uh, I don't know how much it will cost. It will definitely be uh, in four digits. It might get up to five digits uh, before the, uh, the smoke clears, depending on options and uh, what uh, has happened with uh, or whether I can, in fact, use my legacy equipment. Second point, um, James, your Stratus is a great little box. I've, I've kind of pre-flooded that. Um, um, uh, it's, it's basically a, um, uh, an ADSBN receiver that mm-hmm. communicates over Wi-Fi with an iPad and gives you basically the, uh, the FAA's flight information system broadcast, or, or FISB, also known as FISB gives that to you on your iPad, and that's a great little box. It's a great little solution, and one of these days real soon I might be splurging for one. But that in and of itself doesn't make you ADSB or next-gen compliant. As no. Yeah, okay. Uh, James, anything you want to add to this before we move on? Well, just again, I think there's so there's so many questions out there, such a, a lack of direction, uh, a lack of technology. I'm very curious how things are going to come up as this sort of Doppler effect as we get closer to 2020, and it's like, I don't have it, I don't know what the equipment is, I don't have the money to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to be a, an interesting dilemma. Yeah, it's going to be well, a thing. Interesting. One of the things I'm finding, too, is is there are no real elegant solutions um, on the market currently um, to the dilemma that I would face, which is I want to you know, retain my legacy avionics. I want to make them work and play well with this next-gen system uh, without having to rip everything out and replace it with brand-new stuff um, to, get, to retain the same capability but also add um, the, the ADS-B thing. I want it light. I want it bulletproof. I want it, you know, inexpensive, and I want it yesterday. Yeah, David. Re- David, fi- I'm sorry, Jeb. You finished. Go ahead, uh, David. You jump in here and wrap this up. We're gonna move on. Well, there are about a half a dozen existing compatible and approved ADSB out compatible transponders. Uh, they're running from about twenty six hundred bucks and up. Uh, if you have the, if you have a WAS, an approved WAS navigation source that will hook up to it, that's all you need. Uh, if you've got a GPS that can be upgraded to an approved WASP system, you can do that rather than replace the whole thing. Uh, but the transponder part of it, uh, they're being sold, they're being installed. Avidyne makes one, uh, Garmin makes one, uh, an outfit called Trig Avionics makes one. Uh, I believe Becker has one too, and an outfit called Sage Tech has a really tiny one, uh, physical size-wise, uh, that satisfies the uh, ADSB out transmission requirements. Uh, one of these, and I can't find it right off the top here. One of these may actually uh, be available with its own integral WAS GPS navigation source. Like I said, you not you're going to be able to program it with your flight plan. It's like a blind encoder, but it satisfies the requirement. Uh, the, the whole net for this, though, is still you're looking at five, six thousand bucks as things stand now. Yeah. Well, I have a question. If I, if sure, go ahead, James. Well, I, I, uh, you know, now we're seeing 
iPads being approved for use in commercial cockpits. Has the FAA kind of missed the boat? Are they in last year's, uh, you know, last century's technology? Might, you know, if I was an Aspen Avionics or something, I'd be kind of scared. Why would people spend all this money to put something in a panel when you can have an iPad that's going to show it? And in the future, a couple of years, might there be a portable solution that would do just as well and meet some specs that maybe the FAA could come up with for a cheap portable solution to the ADS-B uh, quandary? It, that, that could well be downstream. But the only thing the, the iPad's been approved for for use in commercial cockpits is to replace charts. That's all. Well, it hasn't been approved as a navigation source. It hasn't been approved as an altitude source. It hasn't been approved for any of that stuff. Just been approved for commercial operations like NetJets and NetJets Europe to use as a replacement for having paper charts. And the it's approval stark. was really kind of saying it is a start, but the the approval was based on on uh, chests that showed that it didn't interfere with the cockpit systems and that it would withstand a rapid decompression event. Not, not anything else. By 2020, we're going to be able to do all this stuff with uh, just by using the chip that the government has put in our necks. So, right, the one planet at the base of our brain. No, 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 see, 20, we'll have a drone show, so they'll know just, just by looking at the video feed from the drone. Where exactly. We are. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, so, what, what, one, what, one real quick thing, and I'll shut up on this, is. Um, uh, iPads and other tablets have been approved as EFBs by various commercial operators, but they do more in that EFB role than just display charts. They'll have the POHs, they'll have uh, dispatch forms, they'll have a lot of other necessary paperwork on that on that iPad, um, not just charts. Yeah. Okay. And just, just right. charts. I mean, you're flying instrument approaches with charts on there. I mean, can you get any more? Serious. Well, it's a true. document. It's a document. I shouldn't have said charts. I should have said document. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no I, I'm, not, I'm not jumping on your case or anything. No, no. I, I'm just but saying, you're right. It, it it is, gone, it's gone beyond just displaying a PDF. But it's still only paper that they've approved it to replace, is paper stuff, as uh, opposed to approving it for any part of the operational control of the airplane. Right. Or as a navigation source. Okay. I have no idea how to follow that with this. Um, well, Jeb, Jeb was talking about having drones shadow us. Yeah. And I saw a piece a couple of days ago that talked about how you can get this little hovercraft, this little helicopter. Oh, no. And, and it comes with a special T-shirt. And if you want to have company to talk to you or play music or just beam pictures back to your wife while you're doing running, this thing knows to follow and yeah. them on your shirt. Be like a personal AWACS, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that that of course begs the question of you know when are we going to be able to buy our own little drone, drones, <laughs> yeah. drones, yeah. droids, um, drones, and be able to have them patrol the skies uh, over us. And, you know, maybe even arm them with something so that if there is a drone that interferes with that, we can shoot it down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, anyways, this, I, actually, just one other question, Pablo. This episode's never going to end, folks. Sorry. We're just going to keep going. Uh, they call it the Joggobot, by the way. J <laughs> the what? The, the Joggobot. What's a Joggobot? 
the jogger. It, 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 oh, it's 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 a drone that follows along a, a jogger wearing a special T-shirt. It's called the Joggobot. Okay, I'll have to look for that. Uh, I really, I really am going to move on here. But first of all, I want to say. Um, so we talked about this last week, I think it was. Uh, James, you would never turn your cat into a quadricopter, would you? <laughs> no. No, I would not. <laughs> that, that's a good thing, James. Yeah, no, we agree. We all thought that was a little creepy, but, uh, you know, yeah. it's... Uh, you, we, we were taking a poll. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, we were taking a poll. That's right, yeah. So, anyways. All right. I really have no idea where... To, I'm just going to flip over all the cards here. Um, uh, shout-outs. What do we got here? Shout-outs. Um, I want to make a shout-out to... Uh, oh, thank you, David. You just sent me this link to the... Jo- oh, man... Stop. <laughs> Sorry, you guys didn't hear that, but when I opened up the link on the on the uh, on the list here, it made noise, and I didn't like that. Um, where was I here? Uh, I, my shout out is to this young lady who uh, who video. I was looking for her name. That's why I opened the link here, but I don't see her name. Uh, this young woman uh, who. Uh, Took her her uh, glider solo, and uh, and videoed the whole thing. She p- mounted one of these cameras uh, on the front panel so we could see her face and uh, out the back of the airplane. And uh, um, and it's just a sweet little thing. It's nothing really earth shaking, um, but it shows her uh, going through all of the stages of her first glider solo from uh, launch to release to flying around a little bit and then uh, a little bit of the pattern and then touchdown. And I, like just about everybody else, take note of the kind of very charming moment at the end of the whole thing. She's very focused. She's very professional. She does the things that, you know, I mean, I don't gliders, but I presume she does all these things properly and is very serious and is very focused. And then when it is all done, when she's rolled to a stop and she's popped the canopy, there's this kind of like a... You know, kind of, oh, you know, on her face, and it's just, That's just very cool. It's it's priceless, and it's really sweet. And uh, congratulations, this young woman. I'm really. I wish I could say her name, but this uh, the notes here don't have her name. Um, but uh, uh, she's apparently part of the uh, Civil Air Patrol, uh, uh, some sort of auxiliary program where they do uh, the glider training, and uh, I believe it's in Ephrata. Ephrata, is that how you say it? Washington? Ephrata. Ephrata, Ephrata, Washington. Anyway, so uh, that's my shout out to the young woman who did her glider solo and uh, shared it with us on YouTube. That's very, very cool. Congratulations. Anybody else got any shout outs? Well, I got one that I, it, it's kind of a, a, a preclusive, that is, this is a shout out in advance, uh, but to Experimental Aircraft Association Chapter 88 here in Wichita. Uh, on July 7th, that's a Saturday, they're holding their 49th annual chapter fly-in, which is an Independence Day weekend fly-in. Since the 4th of July this year is on Wednesday, the middle of the week, uh, they're not doing it on, you know, they're not going to do it in the middle of the week. It'll be on, you show up on Friday, they have a banquet, and the fly-ins on Saturday, pancake breakfast, burgers, Static display, Young Eagle flights. It's at Newton City County Airport, north of Wichita. Echo Whiskey Kilo is the designator. Uh, we'll give you a link. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and my hat's off to them. Uh, next year will be their 50th, and I think that's quite a yeah. milestone for a chapter event. Very, very cool. Yeah. Jeb, James, you got anything? I don't. 
one one other one that I want to jump in with here is uh, so a bunch of episodes ago we talked about the Finlay Air Rally, which was a uh, sort of a informal aviation competition kind of rally of some sort that uh, uh, was going to be held, and uh, I we got a posting in the forums from listener K Swim ninety four who says uh, uh, during the shoutouts Jeb mentioned the Finlay Air Rally, which took place today. Uh, unfortunately, I had to work and couldn't make it, but my dad and my son made it and won. Uh, wow! Yeah, so uh, which is just doesn't it's it, that's just a terrific story that uh, that uh, uh, his dad and the grandson uh, went out flying and participated in the Finley Air Rally and uh, and uh, and were successful, prevailed. So that's very very cool. There's more information about Excellent. this in the forums if you want to read this. But uh, congratulations to dad and son of K Swim ninety four. Uh, very very nice. Very nice. Okay, uh, is that it? Anybody got anything else? No? Okay, then we're going to stick a fork in this one. Let's see now. James, welcome back to the Virtual Hangar. It was really great to have you great back. Great to be here. And we uh, appreciate you taking the time and, and, and uh, chatting with us and filling us in on what's going on. James Winbrand, of course, is an author and aviation journalist. And uh, it, what's, uh, what's going on, James? You working on anything fun? Anything coming out we can read? Uh, yeah, I've... Well, if you can find uh, some of the publications, I'm doing some work with... Uh, a magazine called Arabian Aerospace, and uh, I have an art, well, a, a number coming out in the upcoming issue. Uh, one on MD helicopters and their plans for the Middle East, their efforts to kind of make some inroads there, and also what uh, the bankruptcy of Hawker Beechcraft is going to mean for operators and prospective buyers in the region. Uh, HBC has been very active in the Middle East in trying to kind of promote the brand recently and sponsoring a number of events, so this really is shaking things up. Uh, there. Also for uh, Business Jet Traveler, where I am the uh, inside charters column, you know, we hear so much talk, or if you're in the charter world, you hear all this, oh, our customer service flight crews. And so uh, I'm looking into, in this upcoming article, what actually, if you're a charter customer, should you expect your flight crew to do for you before, during, and after the flight in terms of customer service? And also, uh, an article on how uh, to get some discount access to charter aircraft. And uh, in a non-related issue, you know, we talk about some of my musical exploits sometimes, and there is this this club here in New York, CBGBs, that's had some notoriety over the years, and Mm -hmm. they're having some sort of uh, concert sort of related to that. And uh, on July 5th, so I I will be playing, uh, doing a solo show there, and then with uh, one of my bands from that era that's actually on the live at CBGB's cool. album from that. That's very years. cool. I thought I had heard that CBGB's was closing. Was that... Something? Oh, it's closed. It's over. But the, actually, the name was bought. It's going to be, re, you know, I so, don't know so where you're just they're going to do it, but they're going... You're just breaking in with your guitar, and you're going to, like, you know, just kind of play in the dark a little bit. Well, this will be at a different venue. It won't be at CBGB's. Ah, I see. Okay. Different venue. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, and also, I mean, uh, wonders never cease. There's actually a movie about CBGB's that is about to start filming. Uh-huh. So, uh, who would have thought? Very cool. Very cool. Well, that sounds great. And uh, and I presume that we'll see you at uh, at Oshkosh in a, in a few weeks, right? Uh, that's my hope. I certainly plan to be there. Terrific. Got to get my. I'm going to see if I can get my favorite room at the Super 8. That's, what makes it your favorite? 
Well, it's closest to the runway and the, sort of the best view you can get of approaching aircraft on uh, runway nine. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And, and as always, James, I assume that uh, we can find you on the Internet by Googling your name or searching for you on Amazon. you have any other web presence these days? Uh, I'm afraid not. Okay. Also, Dave Higdon's out there. Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Anything fun? Well, uh, let's see. What's today? The 16th? In about a week and a half, uh, we'll have an article coming out uh, exploring the different ways that a pilot could uh, take the airplane from analog to uh, digital panel. Uh, and some of the considerations, whether you might want to add standby power, since you might not have any air-powered instruments left anymore. You're going to have an empty pad there where the suction pump used to be. Uh, that'll be out in Avionics News here in about 10 days. Very cool. And where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, AEA.net, avbuyer.com for my work with World Aircraft Sales. Uh, got a piece there coming out pretty soon. Well, always there. Uh, or just Google Dave and Dave Higdon, and remember that I don't play golf, and I'm not that strong on theoretical physics. <laughs> and and Jim, okay, and Jim for inside particle. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> the Hig, that's right. There you go. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a new particle at some point called the Higdon. The Higdon. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what have you been working on? Nothing a whole lot this last week since our last episode. Uh, I've been doing other stuff. Um, Gearing up for uh, another issue, though, of uh, of Aviation Safety Magazine that will be on the streets. uh, The July issue will be on the streets here in just a few days. Uh, August issue will be the next one I'll be working on. Very cool. Uh, also gearing up for some more stuff for uh, Avionics News, and, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, might, might be coming soon to a magazine near you. And people can find you on the Internet where? Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, sometimes on AvWeb.com, uh, AEA.net, uh, com, and uh, uh, sometimes with the Google, too. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, I'm working frantically these days on getting Volume 2 of my Around the Field series uh, ready for uh, publication as a Kindle ebook, And uh, hopefully that will... Uh, I'm, I'm desperately trying to get that uh, available online prior to Oshkosh for reasons that you can probably imagine. Um, and uh, so that'll be there. Uh, I have also started blogging again. Uh, I do aviation blogging now on my own over at AroundTheField.com. I've been touting AroundTheField.net for quite some time now, uh, and it's been kind of static with just archives of the old columns. But uh, but uh, I'm, I'm doing blogging over there now, and if you're curious to see the things that tickle my fancy uh, as an aviation person, you might want to check in there. Also, you can learn more about me at JackHodgson.com. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and for the help that he gives us with the forums. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the, f- grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information, for you yeah, not really. Uh, for information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much; just ten or fifteen dollars over the span of a year is. A big big help and don't forget you can visit with all of us at the uncontrolled airspace website you can view the forums check out the wiki the aviation movies list the new ratings web page of fame and more all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com david what were you going to say 
Enjoy a long life. Go fly. And remember, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFM. have to be lost in space. I can fly the Jupiter 2 and get us back home to Earth. Warning, 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 warning. Silence, you belligerent bucket of bolts. Dr. Smith, you must not take the controls until you have received a safety briefing. Oh, all right then, go ahead. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Silence, you cantankerous clump of cogs. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the spacecraft, uh, airplane. Are you that finished? That is all. What did you that say? That is all. Then yes, shut I up that finished. silly speaker. Oh, where is Jack Hodgson when you need him? You may proceed. All right, then. Here we go. Danger, 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 danger.